0: The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. The podcast is also sponsored by Fraser's Ridge Homecoming, presented by Outlander North Carolina. Now in its fifth year, Fraser's Ridge Homecoming is a unique three-day immersive event held in North Carolina's backcountry, with more than 30 historically accurate workshops, as well as encampments, music, dancing, and more. Guests will be taken back in time to Claire and Jamie's home on the Ridge to experience 18th century North Carolina history like never before, form lifelong friendships with other fans, and even have the chance to meet a special guest from the TV series. Come home to Fraser's Ridge October 12th through 14th at Leatherwood Mountains Resort in historic Ferguson, North Carolina. Begin your journey to the past by visiting Fraser's Ridge Homecoming.com. Outlander-inspired, history-focused. If you had a headache in the colonial period, would you know what to do to treat it? How about if you had a cough, became violently ill, or God forbid needed emergency surgery? Would you know what to do in those situations? The answer for most of us would be a resounding and terrifyingly simple no. We might not know what to do, but we would know who to call upon. You just better hope that the doctor is in. Hello and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents, Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region, through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwyn Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents we are back to exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the stars series that adapted it for television. The beloved story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time-travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie Fraser. Together, the pair land in the American colonies and North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War in the 1760s and 70s, and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. For this episode, we're stepping inside La Dame Blanche's apothecary for a discussion on all things colonial medicine. There are few things more central to the Outlander story than Claire's work, as a doctor and a physician. It's who she was when audiences first met her in the 20th century, and it has only become more important to her worldview as she lives 200 years in the past. However, Claire's knowledge of medicine has been put to the test in her colonial-era life, during a time that was still decades, if not centuries, from some of the breakthrough practices and procedures that define our health care today. Whether she's on a battlefield or Fraser's Ridge, Claire has been the person her community turns to in moments of crisis, and that won't change with the arrival of the American Revolution. For this episode, we are going to be using medical terms and discussing medical care in the colonial period that might be a bit too graphic for younger or more squeamish listeners. But in that context, what was colonial medical care really like? Was it as medieval as it might look to us 250 years later? And what were healers like Claire practicing in their time that we still rely on today? We're going to answer those questions and more on this episode of Bergwin Wright presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. To talk about the ins and outs of colonial medicine and its depiction in Outlander, we are joined today by Charles Brett, a Tryon Palace volunteer and medical interpreter who trained at Colonial Williamsburg. Charles, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I think this is something that a lot of people are fascinated by when they watch Outlander because it's so inherently important to who our protagonist is, who Claire is. She is a healer, and that is not something that is easy in the colonial period. It is not something that's going to be getting her any fans, as we've seen over the course of the series. It actually gets her described as a witch. But it is really important to who Claire is. And it offers a portal into what colonial medicine would have looked like, how it's different from what we are providing as medical care today, and how there might be some similarities. And so I met you when I went to Tryon Palace and took one of the Outlander tours. And you came to Wilmington this past spring and you did a program for us at the Bergwyn Wright House showing off some of the things that you've learned about colonial medicine. And so I wanted to make sure you were on this season because we are about to head into the American Revolution. And one role that Claire is going to have in season seven is being a field nurse, being a field doctor. And so we're going to see more of the medical care that can be offered in the colonial period. And so I figured it was a great time for us to talk about it. Now, what are your impressions about how colonial medicine has been depicted on the show over the first six seasons and change?
1: Yeah, so there, you know, there's a there's six seasons plus plus one and and more to come. And what I've noticed about a lot of medicine in general from this time when we back started back in season one in the the mid 1700s in Scotland. And transgressing all the way to, you know, North Carolina and the American colonies, there, there was a lot of change in medicine globally as a whole during that time. So in the first couple of seasons, we're dealing with the progress of European medicine. And then as we go through the seasons, we start to move into more of colonial medicine, which is quite different from the European medicine at the time. European medicine was very established at that time. Uh, It had the Royal College of Physicians in London, and also there was one in Edinburgh. And they were the guardians, or they were more or less the uh, experts in the field of medicine. And they would actually be the ones that would make sure that new physicians were certified and were trained correctly in their facilities. And so they had a lot of power at the time of what a physician would look like, what a physician would be. When we move into the colonies, those same type of physicians are coming over to the colonies, but their practices are getting a little bit different and more innovative because of the climate, because of the colonies, because of the circumstances that they find themselves in. They're not exposed to all the ordinaries of England and European medicine now they're exposed to more of the exotics of maybe tropical medicine or different climate medicines and so that's a big type of going from one side of medicine to the other and making that change and so what we see in Outlander is good representation of European medicine that Claire has to deal with and in her context she's trained you know, in World War II in the early 20th century and only knowing that context and then having to take that training and going back 200 years to where a lot of those things were not established yet. And so she's having that conflict as as her practitioner, as a nurse, going through those things and finding ways to practice medicine in a world that really hasn't established a good practice of medicine that we know of. And so Outlander, even in the colonies, you know, does that good interpretation of a backcountry physician that really took care of their community, that took care of, you know, who they were living with and in Fraser's Ridge as that type of community, you would have a physician or somebody in the in the neighborhood, if you will, that could take care of the population. But they were few and far between, especially in North Carolina. Those communities, especially smaller communities, didn't have physicians available. And so they relied on a lot of you know, herbal remedies and home health care, if you will.
0: Well, and that's, again, very central to who Claire is. She's struggling with stripping away some of the advancements that she's trained under in the 20th century before she goes back. You know, we saw her last season try to, you know, quote unquote, invent ether and anesthetics and things that had not been invented yet, and therefore would not have been a part of your your standard colonial medical care. And so it's really interesting to watch her blend her two worlds, uh, you know, in so many ways that we see on the show. But when it comes to medicine, she has to remember her time and what people can and cannot do. And obviously, she has stepped uh, a bit farther than some people would like her to step, and that has gotten her into trouble over time. But it, it's been an interesting kind of tightrope that she's walked when it comes to colonial medicine. Now, you hinted at it just now, giving us an idea of what it was like in the backcountry of North Carolina. But what was the broader state of medical care in the colonial period, because I don't think people understand that there weren't really hospitals. It was more of a personal come-to-your-home, come-to-your-community type of care. It wasn't you then getting on a horse and carriage and going to a hospital to get treatment. So what was the average type of medical care going to look like for an average person?
1: Sure. So the, in colonial, you know, we'll speak of North Carolina, and we can also speak of the other colonies, as well, South Carolina and Virginia. And as you get further up north, you know, the care is going to get a little bit more urbanized because you have larger cities like Philadelphia and Boston and New York that have a host of medical practitioners, we'll call them physicians, apothecaries, druggists, midwives. They're all referred to as doctors. And so really a doctor at that time in colonial medicine was anybody that would practice medicine of some sort. It could be as easily as applying bandages after surgery. It could be as easily as assisting someone with childbirth. It could be taking medicines from an herbal garden and making up remedies to recipes. And so you're going to find a kind of where the communities are centered at, how big they are, how urban they are what type of medical care you're gonna have. So if, for instance, in cities like Wilmington and Edenton and New Bern, you're gonna see more practitioners coming in because that's a port city. One, you have a lot of travelers coming from overseas and that's where a lot of your epidemics are going to enter the colonies. And so that's gonna be a flashpoint for a lot of diseases that come into the colonies. And so physicians and apothecaries uh, surgeons would be concentrated there. As we go further into the backcountry, we'll see them in smaller cities, uh, Hillsborough, Salisbury, they're still around but not in the numbers. So if you were a common colonial, and it also depends on your class too, lower to middle class, lower class to middle class, we're gonna say, uh, would probably have an old, their only herb garden or maybe a kitchen garden. They're gonna grow a lot of the things they're gonna use for medicines and they're gonna come from recipe books, home remedy books, and things that are just passed down from, you know, their parents and their grandparents and their siblings. Home health care is going to be a big thing and that you would not necessarily go to a hospital to get treated. Uh, you're going to be treated inside your home, so you would call on a physician, or you could call on an apothecary or surgeon to come to the house. Most likely, with the apothecaries, you're most likely go to their house or go to their shop and obtain what you need for your medicines and bring them back home and use those. And apothecaries were very good at providing what we would call more like urgent care and their general practitioners. So they're going to provide a little bit of the advice for common ailments, and then prescribe something to you that they have in the shop. And you could take that back with you. But most of your health care, whether it be illness or injury, is going to take place around the home. And uh, the availability of physicians is going to be uh, tough too. They don't have a lot of physicians in the colonies. Uh, at one point throughout the colonies in the 1700s, you ranged about 4,000. Now you think that's a lot of physicians for the colonies, but when you're talking massive amounts of people in colonies and people coming in and out of the colonies, that's not a big number for physicians.
0: Especially when they're congregated in urban areas, like you said, you know, they're going to be more plentiful in some places more than they are others. And so someone like Claire becomes so important to their community. We've seen her go to houses and we've seen people come to her for remedies and, and treatment. And so it's it's really interesting how she's really established herself at Fraser's Ridge because that would have been a lifeline for so many people who aren't in a port city like Wilmington or aren't in a metropolis of sorts like a Boston or a Philadelphia. And so that's why I think medicine being kind of this undercurrent of the show that we see Claire and the story return to over time is, has always been very fascinating. Now, for those of us who aren't very acquainted with the ins and outs, the ups and downs for sure of colonial medicine. When we see some of it depicted, it can feel very medieval, but they were making advancements. So by the colonial period, what were some of the advancements, some of the discoveries that were being made that was making healthcare a bit safer, or at least a bit more pointed in how it could treat illness?
1: Certainly when I depict medicine, you know, and the show does this too—the most dramatic surgical scene, the most dramatic injury scene—you know, where our hearts are racing, kind of like a trauma responding. You know, that's what makes good television. Healthcare and especially first responders and and ph- trauma physicians have that same kind of thing, but it's a little bit slower. <laughs> uh, so when we see certain things in Outlander, such as you know these on-the-spot surgeries or these trauma cases that claire does you know they are hurried but they are very uh intent in what they're doing some of the advances that we find especially in the colonies and i talked about earlier with with urbanization medicine is that we were still using the tools from england we're still using the tools from scotland um, we're still using the recipe books from england and scotland but what we didn't know is what the colonies had available as far as medicines and you know we did Do some experimentations and some discussions with Native Americans, and we saw that a little bit with Claire and the Cherokee on Outlander. It was a conflict for physicians because accepting those recipes not ordained by the Royal College of Physicians was a little bit um, risky. For them and their reputation was their way of life the better reputation they had the better track record they had for treating patients is how they were going to make their living and so going kind of outside of the norm to find those medicines was a little risky on their part the other advances that we see not necessarily medicine particular in a remedy but as a whole is public health what we notice in large urban cities is sewage. And, you know, such as in Wilmington, things are just thrown out on the street, sewage and garbage, and it's very unhealthy environment to live in. And so what physicians and practitioners were concerned with is it was that raising miasma or bad air. And that was that A catalyst for causing a lot of disease and illness so looking at public health of how we got water into a city how we were able to get sewage out of a city how you know running from a higher level to a lower level and not running into the water that we drink the same type of things we kind of practice with our soldiers on the battlefield we were bringing those into the cities and trying to make the cities and those heavily populated areas a little bit more easier and healthier to live in the other thing that we're looking for, and especially with physicians at this time, not only are we looking at remedies, the medicines that we give you, but what we call a regimen. And that's a regimen that has to deal with diet and exercise, knowing that you know getting out and moving is going to be healthy for you, knowing that a proper diet is going to give you a better chance when you experience an illness such as smallpox or yellow fever, even using horseback for helping, for writing, for alleviating symptoms and, uh, of asthma and secretions in the lungs. So using some type of diet and exercise in conjunction with medicine. We start to see more developments of the instruments that we use. A lot of our surgical instruments and surgery in general is coming from France. And so there's a lot of French physicians that are cutting edge that are using better skilled knives, better shaped knives, uh, different types of instruments that can assist more with the surgery, uh, assist in not bleeding this much. And the one big one that I have on the table all the time is a tourniquet. You would not be surprised of how much has been written about the advancement of a tourniquet. And a tourniquet is very important because it's not going to save a life, but it's going to delay care enough in a battlefield that The possibility of life being saved is there. And physicians, battlefield physicians and surgeons would certainly uh, have a tourniquet. But the only problem is is that there wasn't enough around for all the soldiers. They may have one or two because they were expensive to make, expensive to get, and was a valuable commodity. And certainly if you're on a losing side, you're going to lose a lot of those tourniquets. But those tourniquets were very important because it would delay that person from bleeding out so that maybe a surgeon can get in and tie off a vessel or cauterize a wound or or do an amputation. That could save them in that aspect. But what we don't know of and what a lot of times happened was the infection that they were not aware of at the time was generally what was going to cause death in those soldiers. But that tourniquet was becoming revolutionary in the fact that they now wanted to have all the soldiers carry one. And in today's medicine, are today's armed forces, we actually do. We actually issue a tourniquet to every soldier, sailor, and marine uh, as part of their first aid kit when they go out. And so that's the kind of advancement that kind of started in the, in the 1700s and has progressed through history.
0: It's all interesting to see the, the progression of how those little things become commonplace now. Because we see different herbal remedies, we see different tonics being made by Claire and by the Cherokee that she's learning a lot of this from. She's not just pulling this from a medical book in the, in the 20th century and taking it back with her. She is taking the time to learn from the people who are living in their own time. But speaking specifically to tonics and, and medicines and things, I know that when you travel and you do presentations as you did at the Berkwin-Wright House, you bring a lot of these ingredients to show what could be made. And so for people who are listening to this in the 21st century, what kind of things were they treating and what kind of things were they making to treat common ailments, say like a, a headache or a toothache or something that, you know, we might take an ibuprofen or a Tylenol for today?
1: Yeah, there is a wide variety of ailments that are happening in the colonial medicine era, the 18th century as they do today the most common ones were going to be something with the stomach it's going to be either a stomach ache maybe constipation maybe simple diarrhea stomach cramps things like that Uh, on my table there's there's probably at least three or four medicines just for some stomach ailments where you know senna is good for constipation it's a natural laxative But it is something that has to be imported. So it's not indigenous to the colonies. We're going to import those in. So I would have to visit an apothecary to grab that. But simple things we could find is like calcium. Calcium carbonate originates from oyster shells. And here in North Carolina, we have a lot of oyster shells. So we can grind that up to make calcium carbonate, which is what we find in Tums today. And that's great as an absorbent for the stomach. So if you have swallowed something or ate something that doesn't agree with you, whatever's in there can help absorb it's also good kind of a mild treatment for if you had like a food poisoning or something along those lines certainly other ailments we're going to have are, are the headaches this you know i said the stomach aches the muscular skeletal issues are going to be there uh we're going to have cardiac issues you know uh, the heart uh, the beating of the heart uh, the slowness of the heart inflammation was a huge one and Inflammation of the legs, inflammation of the arms, either due to some type of disease or some type of injury. We're treating fractures. We're treating bruises. We're treating lacerations and those type of traumas. Our biggest symptoms that we're treating are from epidemics. You know, when we're talking about smallpox and yellow fever and dysentery, those generate complex and layers of symptoms that we treat symptomatically in the 18th century we don't kind of treat as a whole like here's the one wonder drug that's going to cure smallpox we're we're layering those uh treatments by the symptoms that they're exhibit so if they have a headache we're giving them this if they have a, a skin issue we're giving them this so they could take three or four or five different things uh interesting in the first episode of season seven you see governor martin's wife said that she was having some vomiting episodes and that she was taking a number of tonics. And tonics were uh, what we were called to, in the 18th century called patent medicines. And basically a physician or apothecary, or somebody with some medical training, maybe even a quack, decided to make up this special you know cure-all remedy and they were referred to them as patent medicines, even sold in apothecary shops. and they were favored among the wealthy because they thought they were the cure-all. And when they, and the other thing is they could afford them. And so you see Governor Martin's wife have a box of tonics that Claire kind of dismisses right away as maybe some quackery stuff. And let me give you something that's more suited to your symptom. And she gives her a ginger tea, which is what we would have done in the 18th century. Ginger was a good remedy for an upset stomach and vomiting and nausea. And she had morning sickness from pregnancy. So... She was treating them with what she learned as ginger. Ginger's not indigenous to the colonies. We're having to import that in as well. But there are some nausea medicines that we did have here in the colonies, uh, some herbals, both in the backcountry and in port cities, we could find that would help eliminate some of that vomiting. And what was the cause of the vomiting? Uh, A lot of causes of vomiting in the 18th century was probably due to drinking. Uh, So you have these hangovers and you have these morning after type sicknesses and illnesses that we're treating as well. But remember in the context that we're treating with European medicine in a colony that's not European and, and social and climate and things like that. So that's where it gets a little dicey that we may see something here that we've never seen before. We have a hard time treating that because we're treating it with what we know, with what we were trained in medical school. So we may not be exposed to some of the diseases here in the colonies. And that's sort of with what happened with the Native Americans. They did not have the knowledge to treat those epidemics that they encountered. And they died from them. And that was a conundrum with physicians. It's, I got a disease, I'm a doctor, but I really don't have anything here to treat. And so they're having to go outside that box I talked about earlier. Sometimes it worked. And sometimes they were just flat on, I'm just going to give what I know and hope that it does for the best. But there was a lot of terminal illnesses and deaths from even the simplest treatments.
0: Now, I gave our listeners a bit of a warning at the beginning that some of the things we talk about might venture into some graphic detail. We're going to try to keep it as, as general as possible. But one thing that I think people are very fascinated by when it comes to this topic, and, and certainly with Outlander, is those moments of extreme medical care. Everyone has their favorite scene or least favorite scene that they have to avert their eyes away from the screen when it comes on. The one that I have always been stuck with, and it's because we talk about it so much when we talk about this show and this story and Wilmington, is in season four in episode four, where Claire treats Edmund Fanning, who was a real person, a very close friend, and the godfather of the first son of John Berguin, who is the builder of the house that I work for she treats him for hernia she gives him hernia surgery in the lobby of a wilmington theater early in season 4 now this is her real introduction to the wealthy and the powerful you know william tryon and his wife are watching from you know the wings of this surgery and it is as you said heightened for drama it is quickened for drama and so how would some of this stuff have happened how would you have gone about mounting a major surgery in the colonial period? Were there some you could do? Were there some you couldn't? I mean, was there a best practice? I mean, I know every situation would be different, but you know, how do you go about doing surgery in the colonial period?
1: Yeah, that, that episode with Edmund Fanning was probably also one of the well talked about episodes <laughs> among medical historians that I, I talked to as well. And we've, we've talked about that surgery quite a bit So, Mr. Fanning, a lot of it, uh, the surgery itself was generally okay. (laughs) We're always going to have our doubts about, you know, what they're doing. He described him as having an inguinal hernia, which is going to be more, a lot lower than what they showed on the show. It's not going to be so high, but then again, you want to have a good angle for the camera to show a, a bulging hernia, which, you know, by the way, a hernia is when a part of the bowel of the stomach or the intestine protrudes through the lining of the stomach. There's a small hole. And that's generally, it happens mostly in males, and so fanning's a male. It happens in the 40, in their mid-40s, so that's generally the age. So those are right. Uh, developing a hernia that size, that quickly, he most likely would have already have seen a physician for some remedies, uh, certainly for the pain. I don't think he's going to be waiting and waiting and waiting till that exact moment to say, "Oh my God, this is going to rupture," because a hernia wouldn't really rupture. It does require surgical intervention to treat. You can do it non-surgically with some very small hernias. You can easily uh, do like uh, finger manipulation where you can literally. Use your finger to push the bowel back into the stomach. um, But you're still going to have a hole there. So that will maybe require some suturing. That big of a a hernia for Mr. Fanning, though, uh, then what Claire did to relieve it was simply open him up to be able to do that surgical manipulation to push the bowel back into the stomach and then suture up the stomach lining and the tissue with that and over it. I think a, the show was probably also trying to, what I think is give Claire her street credit. How is a woman going to know how to do this surgery in this time that's not professionally trained, that's not reputable? We know nothing about her, and it's going to do this surgery, and we're going to do it in the middle of the wealthy in a theater. So it's kind of like, you know, a very big exaggeration on hey, I'm a physician, I'm a surgeon, and this is what I can do. Uh, so trying to give a little bit of, you know, credit to Claire that, hey, you know, I'm not just a healer that, you know, just has some spells and potions over here that I really know what I'm doing. And, you know, kind of impressing that among the wealthy and of that type of uh, social economic statue that, she's, that they have, With uh, in Wilmington, with the elite, and also with Jamie himself as being a Laird and in his position as a colonial agent. So that's that surgery was very telling of. Yes, would we do it on the table in the middle of a theater? Not necessarily. We're probably going to retire him to a private room, uh, certainly with a lot of light, and uh, very noticeable that she had her instruments with her most. Surgeons are probably going to show up on the scene with something, but not quite know what they need. So they may need to bring them back to a location where they had their instruments. Uh, So that's another thing. And then, you know, post-operatively, what were we doing for him? Really all we're doing is stitching him up and putting a bandage on him and sending him home with, you know, some medicine to kind of help with the pain. Maybe it's a laudanum or some of that willow bark. And that's about it. But surgery is typically done in your home. We didn't, you didn't go to the hospital. Hospitals were more to quarantine the sick and keep them out of the populations, but not to do. Techniques like surgery. Surgeries were done on the battlefield, uh, not at the first level of battle where the fighting was actually happened, but they were retreat back to the different levels or stages of uh, battlefield medicine. They have three stages normally. A first stage is where they, they drop from getting hit. The second stage is kind of what wounds they have. And then the third stage is where you see all the medical tents. And there that's where a lot of procedures are going to happen. But non-fighting surgeries uh, are going to happen most likely in your home the surgeon would normally show up at your house ask what's going on give you a price do the surgery and surgeons are trained to do these as quick as possible there's no anesthesia the ether has not come along yet we got a few more years for that you wanted to make sure your tools were in good working condition that your knives were sharp that the wooden parts were not frailing and you know when we talk about cleaning the instruments yeah, we didn't soak them in dishwater or alcohol as much as they talk about because that was actually damaging the instruments themselves. It was just simple cleaning of them off. The blood gets very sticky, it gets very slippery, so we're just wiping the blood off so that way the knife can be used properly again. But we don't think of anything about sterilization in the 18th century or sterilizing these things or, you know, using one bandage and then throwing it away and then using another one. We reuse bandages over and over again literally the claw fell apart because that's what we had available. Uh, but those surgeries are going to be very quick. They're going to, do, to relieve what is hurting at that moment. I say in a lot of my depictions that there's no elective surgery uh, in the 18th century. Nobody's volunteering to get surgery. Surgery is a last resort. And sometimes it's the only resort. And so we have to look at it in that context. And Claire has a big dilemma with her and that I know how to do this surgery with all these surgical instruments. But really, I have about four to work with. And I have this knowledge. So my, my study of anatomy, physiology, what the body is, what the body does, how it's going to react, that's what I have to focus on. Uh, so I don't have my niceties, but she does have the fundamental knowledge of what that surgery is going to look like and have to deal with what she has available either in her kits or what she brings with her. Yeah, so surgery in the 18th century, it was painful. Um, sometimes the the injury itself was more painful than the surgery. Uh, certainly you see when Jamie had a rattlesnake bite and they're threatening amputation of his leg, the <laughs> the anxiety that he faced uh, not only with having a partial limb, but actually going through the amputation process itself. And seeing those, if you were in the colonial era, you most likely saw an amputation at some point and you knew exactly what was going to happen. And when you had to face it, you know, you knew the anxiety, you knew what, you know, maybe what the feeling was like going into any type of surgery, let alone an amputation. We, we, we depict amputations a lot because they're the most dramatic. Uh, <laughs> uh, people like to see them in a kind of weird sense, but really they were happening when they absolutely needed to happen. not, just as a common treatment for ailments uh, that we discussed earlier.
0: Yeah, if you were only getting your medical information from movies and TV, you would think that an amputation was the first course of action for just about anything in a time that is not modern, because you're correct, it is the most dramatic. It requires the most screaming, it requires the most blood, and so visually it is giving you the dire nature of medicine in a time that is not your own. But it's good to know that amputation wasn't the first thing that they would think of. Now, this might be weird phrasing, and I I don't want to call it your favorite, but what kind of things fascinate you about how they were providing medical care, you know, 250 years ago?
1: Yeah, I always get, uh, when I have my surgical instruments out, I usually have like three go-to that always get questions. And certainly one is the saws that I have and the capital knife, the big curved knife. And, and they don't know that the blade is actually on the bottom of it and not the top, what we think of a regular knife today. Certainly, you know, the, the vials and the bottles of leeches and, you know, the bloodletting instruments always seem to get, you know, a good conversation going. The trepene or trepine, you know, the manual circular saw that they use to treat subdural hematomas or bleeding about the brain with is certainly a popular one. It's used in Outlander. It's been used in several medical scenes in Hollywood before to, to drill holes in, in people's heads. It wasn't a very common procedure to have, but it certainly would garnish you know the most uh, questions or most curiosity about. Least ones are the, the little knives for cutting or the bandages or something. But what's fascinating is that I find people uh, do have some general curiosities about surgery not so much the instruments but the surgery as a whole you have to contextualize today in the 20th and 21st century of how we do surgery where we're meeting the physician we're meeting the surgeon we're pre-opping we're doing labs we're doing x we're doing all these diagnostics to make sure that we're going to do the surgery that is it's required and then afterwards the surgery you know how we're healing from the surgery post-operatively we still get post-operative infections in the 21st century, as we did in the 18th century. So it's fascinating when I talk to people that, you know, we're not just concentrating on the instruments, but we're concentrating on on surgery as a whole. Also, that surgery did not always not require surgical instruments. Bandaging in the surgery books was almost half of the book. How to do certain bandages. Surgery from the Latin, literally translated, means handwork in medicine. So any type of Work you're doing with your hands in medicine was considered surgery. So not just the knives and the saws, but applying a bandage in certain ways could provide a surgical intervention, such as when you break your leg. You know we're splinting those. We're using box fractures, uh, pieces of wood that almost look like a three quarters of a box. But we're putting bandages on top of those. We're bandaging limbs from cuts and lacerations and post amputation procedures. So those are fascinating that it's just not big surgical instruments on the table, but it's the bandaging. It's what goes into the surgery. It's where the surgery happens is what happens afterwards. Because in the shows, we're just getting to the climactic scene of a surgery and they cut away and we don't know what else happens. People that visit me like to know what happens after what happens before. But preventative health was... Probably the most fascinating thing that was talked about. And he, and also another type of health that we have talked about a lot of now that they were starting to talk about a lot in the 18th century, especially the later 18th century, was mental health. You know, the effects of post-traumatic stress. And we see that with Claire after the loss of her child. We see that with Jamie and his deals with his with, when he was in prison and after battle. You know, those were very common ailments of mental health for soldiers and civilians in the 18th century. And what was our treatment of it? Lock them up. Just keep them in asylums and keep them in hospitals. Keep them away from the normal population and we'll try to treat them. But we started to look at you know, treating mental illness as a disease process and not just as a social issue or an abnormal issue and just locking them up and putting them away. Public hospitals were common for just locking up the insane and locking up people that were just not normal to their society. So getting mental health and, and talking about that a little bit in the context that we know now and in the context of the 18th century.
0: Well, to finish up this conversation, I want to ask about what we use today that might surprise people that has origins in this time we're talking about. So are there things, and you've alluded to them, things like tourniquets? But are there any other things that you have found that really surprise people that have their origins in the time of Claire and Jamie Fraser and Outlander that we still use today that is pretty commonplace for us?
1: Yeah, as far as medicines are concerned, you know, we, we do have medicines that we use today that were used in the 18th century. And a, a good portion of my studies has been on comparative medicine, where, for example, in the last episode, you see written... On the materials note to Jamie from Claire from the ship was camphor. Camphor is used today. They used it in the 18th century. Things that we, uh, we can see on the shelves, I, I mentioned senna. Uh, senna's a laxative, we find that in senna today. Calcium carbonate, we find that in Tums today. Peruvian bark, or uh, cinchona bark, was used in the 18th century for fevers, but what they didn't know at the time was that is our basis for quinine today. Once we figured out what the mechanism of it was and what it did to malaria, they made it into the product that we know today as, as quinine. We still, you know, we're getting back into a lot of herbal remedies. We kind of come cyclical with that. We we get out of it for a little bit because we're so fascinating with the the synthetics today, the man-made stuff, the laboratory stuff that, you know, people are now going back to, using a lot of herbals and so the use of st john's wort the use of lavender the use of turmeric the uses of ginger and garlic for health or your heart health um, you see you can look in a a medicine aisle most likely you'll find all the you know the man-made remedies but you go on the other side you'll see all the herbals that can also treat those and they're in combinations too we know more about vitamins today as a single entity in the 18th century most of their vitamins were in their foods and so how they received their vitamin a d c and so forth were through food ways today we're receiving those through tablets or, or liquids you know another different means of getting medicines certainly uh some of the unusual ways i always like to talk about is they recommended smoking in the 18th century smoking different herbs to treat asthma and today we're thinking, you know, why would you smoke and treat asthma? But that was a way of delivering the medicine. So by smoking a pipe that was uh, had a, uh, an herb called whorehound in it, it would actually help relieve the asthmatic symptoms. And we see that in Outlander with the lawyer that Claire runs into with Jamie in Scotland. Uh, he has that cough and, you know, hey, pack this and smoke this. Tobacco use today, we're just thinking of cigarettes, but tobacco use in the 18th century was used for a number of things. One, for earaches. We would take tobacco smoke and blow it into the ear. We're certainly not going to do... Certainly, the, the re, uh, one of the treatments uh, with Edmund Fanny from the surgeon that came in after Claire did the surgery was, you know, he just had a stomach ailment. You should have just blown tobacco up his butt. That was a treatment. <laughs> I don't know how effective it was, and certainly I don't know how we're practicing that. There's not a lot of writings on that, or especially not on our pictures. But that was a documented, established practice. I just don't know how much it was practiced with the other things that they could do. I almost think that was more like a last resort type thing. But they did have clisters and they did have things that were injected in, into the rectum or into the vaginal area or in, uh, into the penile area to, to provide a way of getting medicines into the body, but not so much a cure of it. And, and and we do that in medicine today. You know, if you can't take something by mouth or you can't uh, get a medicine in it through an oral way, we're, we're finding another way to get it into. Maybe it's topically, maybe it's through uh, injection, which they didn't have in the 18th century, but we do today. Um, so ways of getting medicines in. So there there are a lot of medicines that we have today that we still can credit medicines in the 18th century with. Leeches is the other one, cause, just because I have a couple large leech jars sitting on there. We use leeches today in skin grafts and surgery to help promote the taking of that skin graft in bodies. They used leeches in the 18th century more for bloodletting in children. So maybe the use of the leech has changed over the years, but we know with heruditism and leeches that you know it actually cleans the wound itself and it also provides some type of uh, healing. For those skin grafts with using the leeches, uh, and then certainly with the with surgeries, there's many evolutions of surgical instruments over the years, especially through the 1800s, with with more direct, more sharp, more uh, specific function instruments rather than just I just use this one knife for five different surgeries. Now I have five knives for five surgeries. So that evolution, you know, in medicine helps. And then we're still trying to practice preventive medicine, keeping people as healthy as possible, preparing them for whatever ailments they have. And that includes the epidemics we still have today. In fact, one we just are still coming out of from inoculations to vaccinations.
0: Yeah, I think with COVID in the past couple of years, people became even more aware of medical treatments, of the omnipresent nature of medical care and how preventative medicine can be helpful and how being aware of your surroundings your environment we talked about how dirty and and unclean the colonial period would have been how that can really affect your life even in the 21st century well charles i don't think that we scared off any listeners we didn't get into too much graphic detail i think we did pretty good steering close to pg but thank you for your insight i think this is so important to the story that is Outlander, to the character that is Claire, and why we follow her, and, and why we watched her grow, not only as a person, but also as someone who can provide care for other people in a time that is not her own, that has its own challenges. We still have challenges today, and I know you know that better than both of us sitting here because you, you work in medicine, but I think that it's a, a good conversation to have when we are talking about why this peak into the colonial period and this past of ours as a country can teach us lessons about today.
1: Yeah, Claire's character is very complex. For some of us, it's very frustrating. You know, I couldn't imagine knowing what I know now, knowing what you know now in medicine and going back 250 years and trying to practice that, not with just, you know, the community and people speculating that you're a witch doctor or you're some type of you know, potions and things going on because you're not familiar with it like we are. That's a very complexing character to portray and she does a fabulous job of it.
0: She does. Indeed, It's it inspires conversations like this. And so thank you, Charles, for your time. Uh, I encourage anyone who sees you at Triumph Palace or any of the other places that you give these wonderful presentations to sit down and listen because it's really rewarding to understand how we're in a better place than we were when it comes to medical care but how we're still learning from some of those things that they were first dabbling in in the colonial period. So Charles, thank you so much for your time.
1: Uh, thank you very much.
0: That's it for this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back every two weeks this summer with new episodes as the new season of Outlander airs on Stars. Until our next episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please rate and review us, which can help more people find the podcast. You can also follow the Berguen Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit. This podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Burgwynn Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation or joining our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the furthered education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at burgwynnwrighthouse.com. Thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to take a moment to thank Durable Restoration Company and Fraser's Ridge Homecoming for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we'd also like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Burgwyn Wright, Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at durablerestoration.com or call toll free at 1-877-340-9182. The podcast is also sponsored by Fraser's Ridge Homecoming, presented by Outlander North Carolina. Now in its fifth year, Fraser's Ridge Homecoming is a unique three-day immersive event held in North Carolina's backcountry with more than 30 historically accurate workshops, as well as encampments, music, dancing, and more. Guests will be taken back in time to Claire and Jamie's home on the ridge to experience 18th century North Carolina history like never before form lifelong friendships with other fans, and even have the chance to meet a special guest from the TV series. Come home to Fraser's Ridge October 12th through 14th at Leatherwood Mountains Resort in historic Ferguson, North Carolina. Begin your journey to the past by visiting frasersridgehomecoming.com, Outlander-inspired, history-focused.